Hi, I'm Mike Mortlock, Managing Director of MCG Quantity Surveyors and your host for the Geared for Growth Property Investing Podcast. We've got another great episode for you today. We're chatting with George O'Brien, who's a buyer's agent and director of Future Property Co. Now, George is a young chap, but already has an impressive portfolio with no signs of stopping. We have a chat to him about how he started in the mining industry and decided not to blow all of his cash on jet skis and SS utes, but instead buy a property, which was a real light bulb moment for him. Since then, he's gone on to achieve some fantastic things and, of course, launching his business as well. We have a chat to him and he provides some great advice for young investors wanting to get started, some really good insights into the type of properties that he likes to select for his clients and some crystal ball work from him as well. Here's George. George O'Brien, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me, mate. It's been a pleasure to meet you very, very recently, and I thought you'd be great for the uh, for the podcast because we're getting a younger demographic. I'm getting questions from people, and of course, I can't fit that bill being an old fogey. But before we dive into your youthful exuberance, George, who are you and what do you specialise in? Well, I'm George O'Brien. First and foremost, I'm a I'm a property investor. Uh, but I'm also the director and a buyer's agent at Future Property Co., which is a Newcastle-based buyer's agency. Um, yeah, we, we buy homes for both um, astute investors, first-time investors, uh, owner-op clients, a bit of everything. But I really specialise and am passionate about helping young professionals uh, get into the property market early, build their portfolios and create wealth and abundance through property. That's my elevator yeah. pitch. <laughs> Good, I like that, and we'll we'll dive into that a bit more, of course. But yep. young George, what posters did he have on the bedroom wall? Well, I didn't have too many posters. My mum was a bit of a Nazi on the old paint scene in the rooms. Um, but if I was to have a couple, it would have been to do with music and and rugby league. I loved my pop punk back in the day. I was a bit of a Blink One Eight Two, Newfound Glory, some Forty One type operator. Um, I had a few older brothers that really influenced that that music and a few other things in me. Um, and then rugby league, yeah, he's probably like your Sam Burgesses and your Sonny Bill Williamses. I would have had their posters up for sure. There you go. That's a sign of the age as well. I think I might have been like <laughs> Cliff Lyons or something. Um, <laughs> you probably never heard of. Um, how did you get started no. in property and what was your first investment, George? So I got started when I was... Oh, about 19 was the, when I f- purchased my first property um, and that was that was just purely from my father tapping me on the shoulder. I, I don't know how far you want to go back but I was I was earning pretty good money at the time from sort of 16 to 18 and I didn't do a lot with it at all. I was young, I was sort of partying and travelling and, and spending it and he sort of said when I was 18, look, mate, um, I know you're having a good time. I was young once as well. I don't want to rain down on your parade but if I could sort of advise you just to do one thing while you're earning good money and you don't have any expenses, um, just buy a house. And, and he wasn't an investor by any means. He, he just sort of was giving the fatherly advice of buy that first home and, and pay it off by the time you're 50. So, yeah, I did that. I, within a year, I'd sort from when he told me that from sort of 18 to 19, I was earning quite good money and had no expenses. So I, could, I saved about $30,000 um, and, and bought my first home and that was a three-bedroom miners' cottage just on a little 200-square block in a little suburb called Wickham in Newcastle that I know you'd be familiar with, Mike. But back, mm. back at this time, it was, a, um, it was a really 
uh, underdeveloped sort of industrial suburb, not quite the hotspot that it is today. So yeah, that was that was. But very point. close to the CBD, right? Like hundred um, percent. So it's, yeah, yeah, it's the beginning of the industrial area on the outskirts of the CBD, which is now home to a lot of the high-rise developments. It's very close to the harbour. So back then, when you purchased it, it would have been pretty rough and ready. But it's now probably considered quite relatively premium real estate. Oh, definitely. It's it's literally a couple of hundred metres from the start of the light rail. Um, it's literally probably a hundred metres from the harbour there. Um, and yeah, obviously it's a it's a short walk or a ride up through the honeysuckle where there's a lot of a lot of affluence and business, and then into the CBD and then onto your world class beaches. At the time, I I didn't know a lot about property investing, so looking back, I got a little bit lucky, but. I think from looking like zooming out, looking from a macro point of view at that time, subconsciously it, there was a lot of the 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 right things were in place to to make it a good purchase. Good old pops too. I guess when you go out, drinks are on you for that bit of, <laughs> little bit of wisdom that he gave you. Oh mate, looking back, that was um, yeah that that was what really got me started, and and it was still. Uh, a year or two after that before I really um, realised what I was sitting on there and what had actually occurred and, and the power of property investment. So, yeah, he def- definitely drinks on me forever for that one. <laughs> <laughs> You're making it rain on Father's Day at the O'Brien household. <laughs> Bloody hell. Let, let's take a bit of a step back before you were sort of on the big bucks uh, saving for that deposit. What were, you, what were you like at school? What did you want to be? How were, you, how were the grades? Yeah, so the grades weren't great. I was really just at school for, for sort of footy and the girls. I, I didn't really ever want to go to university. I, I could have, I did quite well in maths and, and all of the subjects that mattered, um, but I just didn't really apply myself. I was there for sort of my mates, footy and, and the girls. And then I'd, I'd always planned like deep down, I, I truly, truly believed that I was going to be a professional rugby league player. I, I weren't quite good as a youngster. Um, and, and that's what all I, I always thought I was going to do. Uh, and if I didn't do that, I was just going to be a builder. I was going to be a tradie and, um, yeah, maybe just work and, and play local footy and, and buy a house one day. And that was really all I had planned for myself at school. Um, and then when I was around 16, by that time, I'd already had uh, two knee reconstructions, a shoulder reconstruction and a, and a dislocated hip. And I thought, oh, shit, I guess this isn't really sustainable. Um, footy's not for me and my body's not built for it. So, yeah, that's when I, I dived out after year 10 uh, into a, oh, being a, builder, a builder's labourer. Um, I did that for a couple of months and then sort that's of – That's a hard gig. Yeah, it really was, especially just being a labourer, mate. Like, and over over the summer, just, yeah, take doing all the demolition stuff and, and the brickies labour stuff, uh, it was it was really hard, but I quite enjoyed it. But, like, come midday, you'd be absolutely buggered, but it would be – It'd be quite satisfying working out in the sun with your mates and, and wearing the footy shorts, but it definitely wasn't sustainable for more than a couple of years. Um, and then that's when it sort of come to my attention through just, I think, just talking to people that there was these apprenticeships going on up the mines um, and it was literally double the pay that I would have been getting as like a first-year builder. So I thought, oh, well, I'm, I've sort of I think I'm smart enough I think I'd appeal to them enough but I had absolutely zero knowledge about anything mechanical or electrical or mining nothing at all my my father didn't wasn't in the industry and yeah I thought oh screw it I'll apply for a few apprenticeships out there I actually got about four or five of them I can't remember how many it was 
um, and yeah, a few open cut, a few underground, and then decided to try my hand at the open cut and be a mechanical. I thought that was a bit more macho being a mechanic than a leco. So <laughs> I did that and, and really excelled, mate. From, from 16 to sort of 24, I was up there. And uh, yeah, it was always top of my year in TAFE and, and one of the, tried to be the best at what I did. So I, I really enjoyed it. And it, it, it was a mix of culture up there. I learned a lot of good things and a lot of bad things. But at the end of the day, I wouldn't have been able to accelerate my wealth and, and build my portfolio as quick as I had done if I didn't have that really good income. So what age what age would you have been and, and roughly, and you don't obviously have to answer this, but what sort of salaries were typical at that time at that age? Um, looking back, I'm not exactly sure on the salary, but sort of first year I was maybe in hand, like netting 800 bucks a week. Um, and then sort of into the second year, into the thousand mark. And then sort of, yeah, in, in your third year, you'd go up to just under 1500. Then in your fourth year, just a bit over it. And then when you're, you're yep. but by that stage, like after you, yeah, second so we're year, talking you're in and around a hundred grand, yeah, sort yeah, of fairly but, quickly out of school. Yeah. But you're, you're also working weekends, um, night shifts, yeah, switching shifts all the time, doing 13 hour shifts. It's an hour and a half each way up there. It was pretty tough, tough yakka, but yeah, obviously you got paid. Um, comparatively yep now so obviously we got on the uh, tap on the shoulder from the old man after you were making it rain with all the all the mine money spending it on rugby league jerseys and women or something like that um can you tell us can you tell us with that that property that you bought there in in Wickham what what sort of happened with it and and do you still own it today yeah so I still own it I'll, I'll never ever sell it um I actually bought it when I bought it I thought oh, I'll, I'll live here forever like it, it was sort of that good of a spot close to everything um, but when, when I bought that so I purchased it for around 310 um, and and it was actually the one of my father's old business partners he was not well and he just wanted to live in it till he died basically um, but he but he wanted the cash for it so I, pay, I bought that off him a little bit under market value nothing stupid um, and he rented it off me for a couple of years after that but and I just rented with my friends across the road a uh, bit of a cash flow play there so and then yeah a couple of years down the track so two years down he got moved to a home um, and I'd purchased another one in the meantime but um, once he moved out about two years down the track so I was about sort of 21 um, I actually gutted the whole place because it was an absolute dump. Like it was the definition of the worst place in the in the best street sort of yep. two years on. Um, so, yeah, gutted it, spent about $80,000 on it. Um, and by the time those renovations were finished, yeah, at the time it had probably, yeah, nearly doubled in value. So, but but I'd sort of outlaid uh, 400 by this point, and it was probably worth, yeah, upwards of 650. And, and at the moment, it's probably worth uh, around the 750. Nice work if you can get it. Yeah. 100%. And how was that Renault finance? Was that an equity play, or were you, did you save deposit just, um, or save the cash, I should say, from, from the works in the mines? Um, it was a little bit of both. So I had a little bit of cash, but then when I bought, the second purchase, we sort of played around um, with finance and all that sort of stuff, and I refinanced the loan to from a smaller lender to the Combank. So it was it was a bit of a mix between the two, um, but it definitely had to be done. I couldn't move into it without spending that much money on it. So yeah, it worked out well. 
Yeah, it's a pretty sizable Renault, but obviously you got good return on that. Yeah. Now, George, you're you're still quite young and and smashing these stereotypes that codgers like me like to go on about. You know, millennials can't plan um, to delay their pleasure. They need the latest iPhones and trips to Bali and all that sort of stuff. Is the mold breaking sort of part of who you are as as George, or was it sort of after the tap on the shoulder from the old man and seeing what property could do that sort of got you to knuckle down a bit? Yeah, it was, mate. It definitely, like a lot of people say to me, oh, you got lucky, like the old boy told you to buy one and, and, and it worked out pretty well. You got it sort of off market and it grew really well. But at the end of the day, um, it, it was where sort of opportunity meets action. And I think if you tapped a lot of 19-year-olds on the shoulder now that are earning good income and said, hey, just buy this dump here that's not even doing too well at that time, they would say no. Um, but yeah, I, I did that and then that year later, when he tapped me on the shoulder again and said, you've done pretty well there. And I've looked back and all, all of the similar assets were selling for $50,000 extra basically to what, what they were uh, in the previous year. That was really when the penny dropped for me. And I just thought, wow, this is, this is crazy. I'm, I'm working my ass off every day um, to earn this amount of money when in the background, this has just done this for me, essentially earned me $1,000 a week. And, and it was after that that I realized if you were smart with your money, and you put it in the right markets at the right time, bought the correct assets, you could you could sort of have both. You could still go on the holidays. You could still buy the nice cars. Um, you could have that healthy, balanced life. Um, but you've, you've got to, you can't just be um, doing that all the time. You've got to be making your money work for you in the background as well. And then that gives you the freedom to sort of do whatever you want. So I, de- I guess I don't forego much at all. If I want to go on a holiday, I go on a holiday. Um, I don't buy depreciating assets, but I, I do spend money on a lot of experiences and but I truly wouldn't have been able to do that if I didn't get into the market early uh, and put my money in the right place so I guess that's what I'm trying to show other young people that it is possible it doesn't have to be one or the other and and you've you've had quite a bit uh, of fun in the last little while you took a bit of a break to go on holidays was that uh, after property number two yeah so that was after um, property number four yeah that was so I Basically, after I got that first one, um, when I was 19, by the time I was 20, like I said, my dad said to me, oh, look, you've done pretty well. And at this point, I didn't even know, like I knew about property investing, but I didn't know the metrics of it and, and how it all worked. And then that year later, when I'd seen that what that had done was when the penny really dropped and I went up to um, the, the coast up here in, in the CBD, it was the last block of land on the actual beachfront. Um, they were selling off-the-plan apartments and at the time I didn't know much about off-the-plan apartments at all but I knew the fundamentals were there and I bought that um, off the plan. But moving forward a couple of years into the start of last year, I, I then had around two mil worth of property spread across sort of four properties and I could have I had quite a large amount of equity. I was sitting at like a 60% LVR um, and I was still working in mining. Um, I had a really big opportunity to keep put my head down for five years and really build my portfolio out into a four or five million dollar portfolio. Um, but I looked at my girlfriend and we had a chat about what was happening, and I was really thoroughly unfulfilled in my job up in the in the mines. I, if I wanted to be a supervisor up there and, and boost my pay packet um, and my my lifestyle, I would have had to wait there for another ten years. And I said to her. Let's, let's go traveling while we're young. I was only 20, 24 at the time. Um, she's only 22. I said, let's go do it. Let's go do all the things that we want to do. So we went, we refinanced all of the loans, pulled all the equity out that we could at the time. Um, and looking back, that was a really good decision. We just sat that in offset 
um, and went traveling for nine months. And when I was over there, I listened to way, way too many podcasts, way too many, <laughs> too many books and YouTube videos and people like yourself banging on about how, how good this, this sort of stuff is. And I just caught the bug, mate. I, I'd, I'd already been from when I was sort of 20, really, really dove deep into it and was obsessed with it. Um, that's why I was building my portfolio. But over those nine months, I just thought, wow, I've done this for myself. I'm crazy if I don't get back into the industry when, when we get back. So I sort of had to put the portfolio on hold for A, that travel, and then B, now the business uh, and the buyer's agency. But I wouldn't have it any other way. I, I, I think in the future I've still got time to keep building my own personal portfolio. There's a real sort of, I guess, the yin and yang sort of parts of, of George I've observed. There's the sort of like the millennial side that goes, you know what, let's rip all the equity out and go traveling. Yeah. But then there's also the work ethic and the hustle and the and the planning and the pe- pleasure delaying and that sort of stuff. It's a it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting thing to observe. You're doing the, the both at once. Yeah. Let's talk about that off the plan one. You actually you actually did it well. You bought at the right time and you made money. Was that just all pulling it out the backside or are you actually a timing and strategy wizard that can buy off the plan and make it work? <laughs> First of all, I just want to clarify, we didn't pull all that equity out to spend while we went travelling. <laughs> right. We saved a buffer to, tr- to, to budget ourselves while we, while we travelled but that equity was just to pull it out while we could while we still had jobs and, and we could refinance and all that sort of stuff. With the off the plan um, stuff I mate I'd be lying if I said to you that I I knew exactly what I was doing I had absolutely no idea I just caught the bug um and I I knew that uh in that set that after I'd bought my first property that year afterwards it was costing me absolutely bugger all to hold um and I could save a good amount of cash again and I just that was basically the one of the only things I could afford putting down that sort of 10 percent deposit um for for off the plan apartment and the price point on that was only sort of 260 grand it wasn't that high um but i just looking back i didn't actually know at the time what what the deal was with off the plan stuff um but i did know that it was the last vacant bit of land on the on the water in the cbd of newcastle um and it was yeah there's always going to be demand for that sort of stuff and i think subconsciously even at that time i knew that um obviously in in the market today you definitely steer clear for various reasons of, of off the plan apartments um but but yeah i, I kind of nailed it by the time that had settled two years later ah uh, god it was it was worth yeah 350 ish and i'd have sort of only paid 260 for it so that was that was a cracker that one that that is an absolute cracker, and of course, I was just giving you a little bit of shit, George. Um, <laughs> you 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 actually did really well, and I think you're you're probably more humble than you need to be on something like that. You obviously saw the opportunity there with the scarcity and the, yeah. the supply constraints uh, close to the harbour. Whilst maybe you couldn't put it in the sort of the property parlance that you can use yeah. today, you knew that there was something in it, and you you jumped on it. So you know, well done on that. With the types of properties that you focus on at the moment, is there any any particular formula that you're following? Um, for, so for myself, uh, mm. I would love to say that there's like a, a really like big formula that I put into place and, and I can find all these unicorn properties and all that sort of stuff, but it's really not, mate. I'm still in the acquisition phase of my portfolio. So I'm, I'm just looking for really solid investment grade stuff close to the, close to the capital cities, close to the coastlines. I want three betters or stuff that – has scope for three betters in, in metro locations, um, largest land content possible, 
um, that's, they've got to have that scarcity factor or, or the add value potential or both. Um, so, so all of these things together, mix it in with the, the basic things that you always hear, like being uh, close to all of the infrastructure, education, retail, in good school zones. And, and I think most of all, um, especially moving forward, having that, that high owner rock appeal is going to be um, pretty essential moving forward. So just a mix of all that sort of stuff, mate, but nothing, nothing too special. I think, I think if you can find these types of assets um, that, that have that little scarcity factor like the, the rear lane or the corner block or uh, scope for development down the track or, or adding a granny flat or something like that, I think they're the ones that really are going to perform over the long term. Um, so I really, yeah, just focus on that sort of stuff. But as I move into the, uh, the sort of acceleration phase of, of my investing um, career and portfolio, I'll definitely be looking more towards uh, some, some heavier cash flow plays, whether it be regional or, or dual key stuff or small developments and duplexes, all of that sort of stuff. But at the moment, just your bread and butter type properties. But obviously, if you can get them, especially in the acquisition phase, if you can get them under market value if possible it's obviously not possible in in today's market um or not very not very common but if you can get that under under market value you can add a bit of value to that with us with the cosmetic Renault. and then if the main thing is regardless of the first two you've got it's got to be in a really good growth pocket where the demand outweighs the supply basically and if you can buy assets like that i'm sure you've heard it all before within a year or 18 months you can go again and it just compounds um, and yeah, once you've, once you've built that base, you can move on to your, your commercial or your higher cash flow stuff. But yeah, that's, that's what I'm looking at at the moment, Mike. And for clients that are coming to you that are saying, George, I'll have what you're having, uh, I guess it depends on, on where they're at with their portfolio, whether it's the first one or whether they're wanting to balance out some negatively geared ones. Is there, mm. Are there any particular properties outside of what you've sort of just described as looking at yourself that, that you focus on or is it a similar philosophy just depending on the on the client's portfolio? Yeah, mate, it's, a, it's definitely... It's a similar philosophy. I think you'll, if you talk to a lot of buyers agents, we all have access to a lot of the same data and we all have some similar strategies. Um, but it really just depends. It's just not one size fits all for me. I think every single client is different. Like at the moment, I've got a, like two brothers that are from Africa that have like a $300,000 um, price point and they don't have good income. And then I've got another guy that's got a 1.5 mil um, sort of price point. And, and the things that you're looking at those two, like their incomes, their, their risk profile, their liabilities, all, all of that sort of stuff, their cash flow needs are completely different. So I think yeah. it just, just completely depends on um, A, the, the, the client and what their needs are and B, the, the type of market that we're in at the time and what the different markets around Australia are doing and, and offering. Now, this next question is is maybe just a question for myself, but you're you're all over Insta, Instagram. You're a, you're a real celebrity. What what's what's <laughs> happening in Instagram? Is it a new sort of legitimate place for property people to hang out, or is it all just photos of of our deconstructed lattes we're having for breakfast and you know French bulldogs in Superman costumes? Oh, says the Insta, uh, the bloody LinkedIn mogul that you are. Um, that's my that's my channel, mate. I'm sticking <laughs> with LinkedIn. It's where it's where us guys with sort of rusted hips hang. Oh mate, no Instagram, mate. It is, it is the go for me. It's the simplest. Um, I think it's the most easy platform to digest. It's it's what I'm used to. So in, in case the listeners don't know, I've just turned 25, 
Um, and I'm a little, a little bit past like t- young for the whole to be ingrained in Facebook. So Instagram where it has, where it has been at for me. And honestly, the, the ROI on the content that I put out on there, I'm still catching up on Facebook um, with the page and then I've just got into LinkedIn. But, but as far as Instagram goes, um, I can go and, and network with people all day um, go to B&I's and go have coffee and lunches with and stuff with people. And at the end of the day, I'll get a couple of referrals here and there. And you need to do that, build your network. But if I can put out really good educational and exciting, entertaining content on Instagram, mate, the, the inquiry that that brings in is just ridiculous. I don't know if it's because I've got a younger sort of demographic looking at my stuff, but I can, if I can put out some really good stuff, I literally can just sit back and, and watch the leads come in and then obviously I, I sort of go through them and, and talk to people and nurture and then they turn into clients and it, it just works really well for me. It's sort of the easiest and most efficient way to, to do business at the moment. Beautiful, mate. If it's working for you, then I say go for it. Yeah. Doesn't really doesn't really matter what the channel is. I think it obviously helps that people sort of see you out and about, looking very fashionable. You know, <laughs> pumping iron. Um, I don't think people want to see me eating. You know, cheese tubes in front of the television on the weekend. So you've, <laughs> you're obviously giving people what they want. Hey, mate. Um, everyone doesn't know your closet um, triathlete past, but anyway, we won't get into that. <laughs> I keep that quiet in case someone challenges me to a race. You know, I've let myself go a bit. That's great. Um, what's what's the plan for you and your portfolio? Do you have a bit of an end game in mind? I mean, you just mentioned you're, you're 25 years old. I'd be annoyed if you retired in the next five, um, probably just <laughs> jealous. But do, are you building a portfolio with an idea that you want to retire at a certain age or you want a certain amount of cash flow to live on? Do you want to go and, and raise orphaned elephants in Chiang Mai? what's the that's uh that's the left field one i don't think i've seen any elephants on the instagram but um, give us an insight mate i'll do anything once um yeah of course i have i have a plan for sure it's funny when you sent me through these questions and i and i had a quick look through them and i come to this one and i say when my clients are coming on board obviously the first thing is what are you trying to achieve like what's the long-term goal um, but for me, the goalposts change so so often. Um, but as a as a broad overview, like just at the moment, um, I'm trying to get to four mil worth of property by the time I'm 30. So hopefully the business picks up um, and I can get to that point. I know that's a pretty maybe in some people's eyes a pretty high target, but I really want to get to that because then at the end of the day, I can if I do nothing else, uh, I can sort of sit there sit that there for 20 to 30 years. And it's going to bring me in if it's yielding five percent, um, two hundred grand a year in today's money and passive income, and that's where it's really at for me. I think that gives you the the options and the opportunities to really do whatever you want once you have that money coming in. Um, but 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 after that, well, by the time I'm thirty, if I can have that formula worth of property, sort of between thirty and forty five, I'll be doing like I said, accelerating the. The, the paying off the debt phase with with high cash flow properties and commercial and, and duplexes and hopefully small development. So that's the plan to really smash off that debt as quick as I can and hopefully, yeah, by the time I'm, I'm 45 or 50-ish, I definitely, definitely won't retire because I just get, will go crazy like I did when I was travelling. I need to be doing something. But at least I'll have the option to retire. I'll have the option to do whatever I want. I was just listening to one of your podcasts with Scott from Rethink and I would love to travel for six months of the year. That would be great. But just, just to have mm. options, mate, that's the end game for me and I dare say I'd be uh, dipping my toe into some developments and hopefully still nurturing young people to do the same as what I've done. 
Love it. I like that. Paying it, uh, paying it back to the people that were in your position back in the day. Yeah. You can be the old man tapping them on the shoulder. Um, <laughs> let's let's talk about some of the the typical sort of cliches, the questions that come up a bit from from listeners, and certainly on this podcast, the the old question about the regions versus the cities debate. I, I know that uh, you're you're open to working on uh, looking at the regionals and cash flow. Obviously, see value of the scarcity in the cities where do you sort of where do you see that playing out in a in a regional versus city from a return point of view yeah i think uh, it's a hard one i think that there's only like history leaves clues and if you look at it the the capital cities they outperform it's where things are happening it's where the people want to live it's where it's just where the demand is and the supply is um will struggle to keep up with that uh, long term and that's where you get your growth so uh, I think the only reason that you should be investing out in regional areas, um, first of all, the regional area has to have good long-term sort of outlooks. It has to have that population growth, the, the jobs growth, and it has to have that infrastructure there, be close enough to a clo- coastline or a, or a bigger capital city. But I think the only two reasons that you'd really be investing out there is if you need cash flow assets to sort of offset your, your negative assets in, in premium locations, that's obviously a good idea and I think you can get good growth as well as cash flow if you pick the pick the right sort of regional markets um, but the other one is just purely if you if your price point doesn't permit you to be in a capital city it just makes sense to go pick a, a regional hub um, there's there's plenty to choose from especially in sort of your, your Victoria and New South Wales um, you can there's there's a lot you can do with it but I don't think anyone should just put a line down the, the, the middle and say, oh, if I can't invest in the capital cities, I'm not going to go regional because the growth isn't there because it's just not true. And you can find really well-balanced assets out there. And yeah, it's, that's basically what it comes down to. But I think, I think like long-term um, with everything that ha- is, has happened, uh, like the, the bushfires, I think was a big wake-up call. Um, and as technology adv- advances more, that owner rock appeal is going to come into it and, and the the cities are going to outperform in your CBDs and, and close to the the coastlines, and it's I think that's just just inevitable. It's it's happened before, and it's going to happen a lot more moving forward. I think so. So it's it's important to that, have stuff that stands out from the rest and is in high under rock demand. Yeah, of course. Do do you think that there's anything that will disrupt the disrupt that age old sort of adage of of the the city, the in-demand areas going up in value because it's close to work? Do you think that maybe we'll get to a price point where we're not getting the same levels of appreciation or we're going to have yeah. a decentralised workforce where people are working from home um, with the exception of being quarantined from home? That's come up in the news a lot lately. Yeah. <laughs> I just mean obviously working from home. No, I think that will definitely happen, mate. I think it's inevitable and especially – at the moment, you look at the wages growth; it's really stagnant, and the, the broader economy. Um, but I think when when all of that is happening, and even technology takes over, and people can be working from home, the, those those places are going to outperform, especially closer to the coastlines. Um, I, I just think that that's where people who are in control of their own their own wealth and in control of their own wages um, and have that that high affluence and amount of money that's where they're going to want to live. They're not going to want to have a tree change i think um as we move forward and the, the age of instagram and social media and all that sort of stuff people want to be around the action and this that's this isn't one size fits all there's obviously going to be people that want to go out there but i i just think there's always going to be demand um for for that in in for these properties in these areas um and at the end of the day the the, the demand is what drives the growth 
There's something about the water too, isn't there? Like I grew up in the country and moved to the coast. I would never move back, although I can't remember the last time I was in the water. <laughs> the thought of moving away from it just fills me with dread. Yeah. What is it about water and the and the coasts on the eastern seaboard that make them so attractive? Oh, mate, it's it's just the lifestyle that it brings. I think the there's, I, I really don't know, but it's at the end of the day, that's that's where people are going to want to live close to the water. And, it, and, and of course, the access to all these different cuisines where that just weren't available when I was growing up. I mean, not that long ago, I had Ethiopian. I thought, this is just like, <laughs> this is just weird. Where I grew up, you could have fish and chips or you could have a schnitzel. Yeah. Um, tofu was like not even invented yet, which <laughs> uh, I came to do a bit of work with. But I think yeah, Ethiopian, once you have that, you got that access to that lifestyle and those different options it's hard to want to get out yeah 100 percent. and i think a lot of it like not only is the surf there and the, there's a bit more affluence closer to the water but you you're landlocked there like you can i look at you look at sort of west brizzy compared to north brizzy um and if you can be closer to the water why wouldn't you be like in in west brizzy they can sort of keep building out i believe and doing more developments and obviously the more supply that's there the less demand and more competition for investors, blah, 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 blah. But, well, when you're in, in North Brizzy there, sort of, yeah, they can sort of keep going up to the, the Sunshine Coast where the, the demand's already sort of there. Uh, it just makes more sense to me, if you know what I mean, not being landlocked because at the end of the day that's what brings the supply if there's land to build on. Yeah, of course, that makes perfect sense. And there's something about being hemmed in by water unless we're doing sort of the the Abu Dhabi-style sand island things, then your, your supply is going to be pretty well constrained. What about um, the regionals? If we focus on those for a second, are there any in particular that have caught your eye from a fundamental fundamentals point of view? Not in particular, mate. To be honest, I haven't. I'm not completely across the whole national markets at the moment. I've been doing a lot of work in Newcastle and, and doubling down here, but I, I think your your Bendigos and your Newcastles as sort of probably the two ones that I see uh, performing long term. The the demand's going to be there, and they're they're close enough to where things are happening. So and and the 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 yields are still there for investors to be. To be buying stuff and being afford to hold on to it with that growth as well. So they're just a couple that. But I'm yeah, I'm really doubling down on uh, on Newcastle at the moment until I get more clients in that are happy to uh, be borderless investors. Yeah, well, there's nothing wrong with with sticking with Newcastle. It's a proven performer. We're not talking two percent yields like a lot of places in Sydney, right? Like yeah. you can get you can get a reasonably high yielding place still in Newcastle, um, or if you're going a little bit further afield at a reasonable price point. How how does it sort of compare? Like if we're if we're thinking about a property in Newcastle, what what would be a typical yield if we're spending say six to eight hundred thousand? Yeah, so your six to eights will probably be around the the four percent, depending on what type of asset you're going to get, um, and that'll probably get you in those uh, mid rings, mid ring suburbs, anywhere from uh, Mayfield around to to Adamstown, um, yeah. and maybe a bit closer in. Uh, so the yields are they're there. I just think I don't think Newcastle is the most amazing market in Australia at the moment. It's just purely where my clients are, are coming from at the moment, or wanting to buy. Um, Sydney clients wanting to buy in Newcastle, um, et cetera, et cetera. But it definitely has all of the fundamentals and those yields still aren't too bad. It's still really, I, f- I find the properties, even in these mid-ring suburbs, it's really not only a couple of minutes drive to, to world-class beaches and, and the CBD. I think there's still a lot of 
infrastructure that has to go in 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 here in Newcastle out to the beaches and up through the middle of the middle of the burbs as well I think there's a lot to still happen and it's it's all going to happen over time here and in the meantime the, the yields aren't too bad and yeah there's I just I just see it as a really solid investment beautiful and and apart from your sort of disdain at working in the in the mining game obviously you mentioned before that you weren't terribly happy what what motivated you to create a, a buyer's agency and sort of pivot yourself in that direction in sort of parallel to to building your portfolio at the same time yeah I um I've always had like an, an entrepreneurial spirit in me. I've started a few little companies here and there that haven't gone great, but I've, I've always just wanted to, I get bored really easy and I've wanted to try new things and, and push myself and get out of my comfort zone. Um, and I, when I was traveling, I, I thought, oh, this is great. I've, I've done this for myself. I really, really want to like sort of give back. And if I can show other people how to do it as well and, and make a, a living for myself, then well, bloody hell, that's like the ultimate the ultimate dream really so um that's really what got me into it i, I was thinking I, I love finance i really think investing is a game of finance and i wanted to be a mortgage broker but i found that was quite crowded that that market and there wasn't too much money to be made um only in the long term really so yeah i was thinking about being a sales agent and then obviously that's a similar situation here in newcastle and i just thought the buyer's agency space um, in Australia and especially Newcastle is just super duper untapped, especially for um, young people like myself who are energetic and really, really like want the best for our clients. We're, we're quite boutique and um, don't take on too many clients. Anyway, I just thought, yeah, if I can, I, I've changed my life. I was kind of going down the, the wrong track, I guess, as a youngster. And just from investing early, whether I knew it or not, it, it was what really changed my life and gave me the options to, to, to create my own business um, and build my own portfolio. And if I can help other young people do that, um, then yeah, that was that was the goal for me. And it's it's I've only been going for three months, and it's absolutely going gangbusters. So I, I can't complain at all. Awesome, great mission statement. I'm I'm on board, mate. <laughs> Speaking of which, when you do bring clients on board, obviously they've seen you benching 200 kilos on Instagram at the CrossFit gym, oh, or out mate. to dinner with your sort of flowing locks and a glass of Sauvignon Blanc. How do you? I mean, I'm, I, I like to give everyone a little bit of stick. Um, so I think you've had your your serving already, George. Um, what's the process it. for for onboarding clients? How, how does it sort of begin? What sort of discovery session or whatever you want to call it do you have with them before you begin your search with them? Yeah. So generally, they'll reach out to me either via the website or social media, uh, and I'll try and I'll, tr- I'll try and get in front of them as much as I can. Um, I find that works the best uh, rather than just being on the phone. So it might be a quick phone call to just say hello um, and get a general gist of where their current situation and what they're trying to do. But then I'll try to get in front of them um, and, and we'll sit down, have a coffee or a beer and, and I'll really figure out their why for why they're trying to build wealth or why they're trying to invest, whether it's to, to build wealth just to, so they can tell their friends they got an investment property, whether they want one or they want 10. I really want to like figure out what they're trying to do because it just makes it so much easier when you're, when you're strategizing and building an a investing plan for them. So you've, you've obviously heard this all before, but they, I'll get to, I'll really figure out what they want to do. So whether that's passive income or just a, a large asset base, whatever that number um, may be and then we just work backwards from that we break it down into a few different stages so we'll, we'll figure out how much like for myself that base portfolio needs to be how much it needs to be yielding um, unencumbered 
and and we'll work backwards from that. Then we'll really double down on that base portfolio and and most of all the the first purchase because I truly think that that first and second purchase are the hardest. Uh, but if you can get them right and and get them done in a in a sort of twenty four month period or or close, um, it starts compounding, and as you know, it becomes a lot easier after that. So. We'll get them in and for that first one, um, we'll, we'll get, look at their finance, we'll pick a price point, uh, we'll pick a market that fits that, fits that price point, we'll pick a pocket of that, that market that we really like that's obviously close to all of the drivers for growth. Um, I'll do my inspections and, and do my initial due diligence, all that sort of stuff. We'll present some properties to them, negotiate, um, go through an exchange, I'll help them set up all of the all of the depreciation schedules and the, uh, the man, insurances, man. management, all that sort of stuff. And then from settlement onwards, I'm just, yeah, I'm here to nurture them and um, take care, yeah, do, do whatever needs to be done from from there forward, whether it's another purchase or just looking after what they got. Um, I, I like it to be really uh, quite personal and quite communicative throughout the whole process. I'm always quite interested in in the questions that people bring to buyers agents such as yourself or, or at least the, the ideas in, that they have and they want you to execute. For example, I'm sure that people come and say to you, I want to buy a four-bedroom place in Wickham or I want to buy a two-bedroom apartment in, in Cooks Hill or mm. I want to get a, an 8% yield on a duplex and can you go and find me one? Do, do you find that that's happening? And if so, what is there anything that people are having in common that they're chasing or they're, they're, they're coming to you with this is my idea of how to generate a portfolio um yeah i think a lot of them just don't really know i think they know they want to invest uh and they know that they they need to start taking action and that's why they reach out to me but i think there's just so much stuff out there and so many people pushing their own strategies and their own stuff um that they just a lot of them have become caught up in it um, I find a lot of clients uh, want to buy where they live um, or close to where they live, whether it's Sydney people buying in Newcastle or Newcastle people buying in Newcastle. I think they're, they're not everyone has cottoned on to the whole borderless investing and the benefits that that brings. So that's quite a common factor for me. Um, but yeah, people, I think they're looking for, I find a lot of people coming to me saying that they want to flip stuff as well, uh, which is just a, it's interesting. It sounds sounds good but it's not always um viable really and, and i think if instead of flipping obviously there's huge benefits in um, adding value and, and then holding on to it but it, sometimes it just takes me explaining to them from a finance perspective that instead of flipping just just hold on to it refinance and then go again and then you can go again and then all of a sudden you've got a couple of properties and uh, it, it's just an education process i think people um that come to me have been told something by maybe their father or um, family or friends and and they're all different but I think it's once they get educated and we have that first phone call or sit down and I can show them projections of if you if you just do this right first to start off with this is what it can look like in 30 years um, it's not hard to to get them on board yeah I think that education is an important thing and and property is one of those things that everyone has an opinion about if I retained a client as a buyer's agent myself I'd be petrified that that person was going to go to a barbecue yeah because that <laughs> seems to be the place where people just get <laughs> lots of different ideas drilled into them and you know buy bitcoin and don't yeah. buy west of this suburb and make sure you're getting something with the upside potential and all sorts of weird things yeah <laughs> I, I hear um i always have different ideas on on how to how to make money quicker and how to invest and you get a few beers into me and i'll spit them out as well so hopefully <laughs> hopefully <laughs> people don't take too much on board at them things and actually 
uh, well, I think it's important to obviously engage the right professionals, but look what they've done and really have a chat to them. Don't just um, think that they know what they're doing because they've got a, a funnel on, on Facebook, you know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Great advice. What's your crystal ball predictions for the market over the next 12 months? And I think in fairness to you, this is probably one of the most difficult questions in general, but most of all at the time we're in at the moment. So we're we're recording in early March 2020. Uh, We're probably going to be going live towards the end of the month. We've just had the deputy governor of the RBA sort of say, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. Mm. And he has an economics <laughs> degree. Um, but all that being said, George, yeah, nah, give, us a, give us a leg up. Mate, I, I have my own views on everything. Obviously, there's a lot of opinions out there. Um, I think it's just going to be steady as she goes, mate. I think the current, like the growth that we've had since sort of, late last year, November, December last year to now um, has been, it depends what you're talking about really. Like it, obviously there's markets within markets around Australia, but if we're just talking sort of about Sydney, Melbourne and and Newcastle, um, I think the growth that we've had, yeah, in the last three sort of months is unsustainable. It it just can't keep going like that. Um, I think as more stock comes online, um, the demand will come down a little bit and then obviously with the, the coronavirus, that's, that sort of stuff is really um, going to impact uh, the, the sentiment more than anything um, and obviously the broader economy, which then has an effect on the property market. But I think um, just in the last couple of weeks, even with everything going on, bricks and mortar has proved that it, it can sustain these types of things. Um, and, yeah, so I think, I think it's going to drop off a little now as more stock comes online and this coronavirus has an effect um, but I think toward like and it, it'll be pretty steady over over the winter but I think towards the end of end of winter and as we come into spring and summer at the end of the year I think all of the so long as this coronavirus stuff has been um, buttoned up and the, the economy is starting to pick back up I think all of the the drivers are in place for for us to have a really good back end of the year and to potentially keep going on the, the trajectory that we, we have been on the last couple of months. But, yeah, I think we're, we're in for a bit of a flat year uh, until then. Yep. I think that's uh, I think that's relatively safe. I'm in in referencing the the speech I just mentioned. We're seeing China's uh, coal consumption. There's a graph where after the Chinese New Year, where production very much slows, it's 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 a very different year this year than the previous two uh, two in terms of consumption. But it's trending back up to the mark. So it seems like things in China are getting back to normal. So hopefully. That is uh, a bit of an insight into how the rest of the globe is going to go with this coronavirus stuff. But as long as you've got some two or three ply in the house at the moment, you're probably doing all right. And I think, Any, it, um, I think it just accentuates even more so that in these times, people still need somewhere to live. Um, so, and as long as you're not over leveraging yourself, um, if you can afford to hold these assets through these tough times, there can be some great opportunities to, not that there is tough times yet, but if it does come, if you can afford to hold your assets, you've got your cash flow relatively neutral. Um, there's opportunities to buy, pick up some really good deals potentially when sentiment's down. So I think it's a, it's a good time, a very opportunistic time. I think, I think so as well. I mean, we're talking about shelter right we're talking about roofs over people's heads as an asset class and people are always going to want a roof over their head and tenants are going to need roofs over their heads so if you can sort of cancel out the noise yes people might 
change their behavior in the short term, but it's not likely going to change too much in the long term, is it? No, exactly. And if you can you can pick up those liquid assets that have high demand, the, the interest rates are obviously as low as they've ever been and don't look like they're going anywhere for a, a fair while. So yeah, yeah. If you if you can afford to, definitely get in and get into it. Beautiful. What else should we know about you, George? Um, this is a it's probably probably lots that isn't suitable for this podcast, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I a few things that I thought people might like might think are funny is that I still rent with my best mate and my girlfriend. Um, so obviously we, we rented out the portfolio when we went overseas and I come back and I thought, oh, there's no point living in our own places. Obviously you've got tax benefits and all that sort of stuff. So as a bit of a cash flow play, we just rent a room, yeah, off my best mate, which works out well. And um, we I only just purchased a car not, not too long ago. Um, I was actually riding my push bike around to some opens and stuff early days uh, and to, yeah. to business meetings. So we've just purchased an, an older type Land Rover because obviously we don't want to pump too much money into depreciating assets. Um, I saw yeah. that the other day, actually. That's not a bad, that's a nice looking vehicle. Oh, yeah, it's not too bad. It's a 2013 model. It's nothing um, nothing special, but hopefully all my mates are giving it to me because they reckon I'll bloody have kids in the back soon, but at least <laughs> another five years. It wasn't quite, I, did, I felt quite, um inferior driving next to the Porsche is it the Porsche that you got <laughs> oh yeah yes that's okay yes, I've got a I've got a I've got an old an old Porsche I think um yeah Mr Henderson sort of dropped that bombshell in one of his interviews but um oh, yeah that's a bit of fun I'm a bit of a bit of a car file myself and I wouldn't like Porsches would he <laughs> no, he's like who knows with that guy. I think he's talking about a a McLaren or an Audi the other day. So obviously things are going well in the in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. Um, for people that want to have a chat to you, George, and get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, uh, probably through Instagram is where I'm most active. George O'Brien, it's I E N underscore buyers agent. Uh, then Facebook's Future Property Co. The website is futurepropertyco.com.au. But I also like to give my phone number out for people who want to just text me and ask me anything or give me a call for a chat, and it's 0455-771-294. So, yeah, as long as it's not late hours of a Saturday night, I'm happy for people to give me a buzz. Or early bit of heavy breathing. <laughs> I'm out yeah. the front, you know, that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Rewind, write that number down again and, uh, yeah, get on the blower to George at all hours. <laughs> um, no, we appreciate that. I encourage people not to to prank call George if he's good enough to give out his number. That's uh, that's a nice bit of access you get as a Geared for Growth listener. Yeah. <laughs> um, George, to, to, to sort of round it all out, uh, if there's one piece of advice that you could give to either aspiring or existing and growing portfolio property investors, what would that be? Um, I guess if it's if it's something you're passionate about or if it's a, a means of a way for something that you're passionate about, just self-educate and, and sort of build your own knowledge base as, as much as you can because it, that, that sort of compounds and, and knowledge is, truly is power, I believe. So if you can, if you can do that from especially an early age um, and, and get in early and obviously put your money in the right markets and, and use the right professionals, um, yeah, that, that compounds over time and it's, uh, the, the sooner you get in and the smarter you are, the, the sooner that you realise the, the benefits of, of those investments. So I guess it would just be, yeah, talk to as many people as you can and, and build your knowledge base and self-educate. And it's quite exciting once you, once you see what, what happens uh, around the traps in this industry and the, the wealth that people and the lifestyles that people have created for themselves. It's quite phenomenal. So I, I, that would be my advice. 
Beautiful. It's been an absolute pleasure, George. Thank you for being such a good sport and uh, and sharing your journey and your wisdom. Um, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me, mate. I, I, um, I really appreciate you having me on. I look back. I listened back to a lot of your episodes before we did this, and um, they're very, very insightful with some very smart people on them. So I appreciate being uh, included in that bunch. That's that's very kind, mate. And the checks in the mail. <laughs> we'll be in touch. Thanks, Mike. Cheers.